Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Mira Andreeva is a phenomenon, and that Sinner-Altmeyer match was something straight out of a movie, only it was real. This is Tales from the Booth, Day 5, Roland Garros. For the first week, I'll be calling matches for TC+, and every day I'll tell you about those matches, as well as some additional observations and storylines from RG 2023. I want to start with Mira Andreeva. I uh, called her match against Diane Pari. We've already talked about Pari uh, after she beat Annalena Kalinina in the first round. And I talked about her slice backhand and what a great asset that is, especially on the modern WTA tour. She can take advantage of certain play styles that are actually quite popular and quite common on the tour. And I, I really love her skill set. I think she's unbelievably talented. Well, Andreva comes out. And beats her 6-1-6-2. So now let's shift to talking a little bit about Andreva and what happened in that match. Uh, by the way, she beat Allison Risk Armitage in the first round 6-2-6-1. She did not drop a set in qualifying. And why is this so crazy? Why did I start off by saying she's a phenomenon? Because she's 16 years old. And she's only... 16 and one month years old. She turned 16 in Madrid. She is the youngest player in the top 300. She only turned pro in April. Since turning pro, she's won 22 of 24 matches. She played two W60 ITF events to start and won both of them, becoming the first ever player to win two trophies in that category before turning 16. Then she went to Madrid, became the youngest player ever to make the fourth round of a Masters 1000 tournament. She has six top 100 wins already. She turned pro two seconds ago, and she has six top 100 wins. It's unbelievable. Y youngest woman to win uh, a match at Roland Garros since 2005. So, you know, the list will go on and on, and it will, you know, continue to probably happen where Andreva is is doing things that haven't been done in a really long time by a player of her age. I guess we've seen this once recently, which is Coco. Goff was 16, and she makes the fourth round at, at Wimbledon um, when she beats Venus Williams. Let me just fact check that real quick. I'm pretty sure she was 16, but she was actually 15. Yeah, okay. I, I thought maybe she was 15, which is why I which is why I fact checked it. Uh, so yeah, so she was 15 when she 
uh, beat Venus at Wimbledon and uh, went on to make the uh, the fourth round, right? I think she won three matches that Wimbledon in 2019 and made the fourth round. So that was pretty incredible. Uh, in a way, Andreva reminds me of Coco. In a way, she doesn't. I'll start with how she does. She reminds me of Coco because despite being a teenager, she gets all of this attention And it, it seems like it's natural for her. Coco took it in stride. She was unbelievable in the press conferences, incredible in the interviews, uh, wasn't getting nervous, seems just relaxed and confident in her own skin and sure of herself. And Andreva's the same way. You watch her in these interviews and it's like she's been doing interviews for 15 years. In fact, I feel like some players who have been doing interviews for 15 years are still not as relaxed doing interviews as Andreva is. By the way, I suppose in, in her second language, she was born in Siberia, moved to Sochi. Sochi. Uh, she's Russian. She just has this level of of calmness and relaxation that's literally unbelievable to see. For a 16-year-old who just got famous overnight. And that's helpful, okay? I'm not just saying that because like, ooh, yay, we get to listen to her interviews. Like, that's not my perspective here. That is just objectively a helpful thing to be comfortable in the spotlight if you want to be a pro tennis player and win the biggest matches on the biggest stages, right? Here's how she doesn't remind me of Coco. Coco immediately, immediately at, at 15 was a fully developed professional athlete physically. Like she was big, she was strong, she was fast, she didn't get tired, she was powerful. She was probably right away like the third fastest player on the WTA tour and one of the bigger first serves on the WTA tour. That's unheard of when you're 15. And it's only possible if you happen to develop physically really, really quickly. And obviously, this is going to be the case for most players who have a lot of success early on in their career. But I look at Mira Andreva and look, maybe this, maybe she is fully developed. And, and maybe, maybe she's always going to be kind of this sleight of frame player. But I look at her and I'm thinking, is she going to keep growing? Is she going to put a lot more muscle on and become more powerful and get stronger in the legs and start to hit heavier and start to serve bigger? Because certainly just visually, she looks her age right now. She looks like a 16-year-old and she's out here making the fourth round of Madrid and winning slam matches two and one. That's what's so unbelievable about this. So physically, she doesn't remind me of Coco at all. Uh, in this match against uh, Pari, the key for her was was really staying extremely solid and breaking down the backhand. Andreva's uh, consistency was unbelievable. Like there were just very, very few mistakes. Um, unforced errors were thirty-eight to fifteen. Uh, Pari was really the other side of the coin. She was erratic. We'll get kind of into why, and I'll, I'll follow up on my Pari analysis in a moment. 
I was really impressed with Andreva's tactical poise as well. She she was kind of attacking to the forehand and trading to the backhand, but she was not she was very present, tactically present at all times, just choosing her shots. You could you could see that she was she was, you know, calculating in her head, okay, I want to make Pari hit as many backhands as I can. But when I have a chance to go hard into the deuce side, and especially when I have a chance to kind of make Pari pay for cheating to her left and for kind of opening up the deuce side because she's trying to create runaround forehands, well, I need to keep her honest. I need to attack into that forehand wing to open up the backhand, make her hit backhands on the run. I talk about this all the time. When somebody has a weak backhand, you have to strike a balance of making sure to find it as much as possible, but also not like playing this kind of, uh, for lack of a better phrase, like brain dead directionals of just going there every single time. Uh, but you also can easily just kind of forget about your mission and get lulled into giving an opponent like Pari too many forehands. Like, that's very easy to do. You see it happen all the time where players just go back to the the same patterns that they're programmed for, uh, that they're that they're generally going to play. But you could tell that Andreva doesn't have that. Like, every single point she played, you could tell she was playing it in a way specific to playing Diane Pari because of how she was attacking uh, Pari's kind of backhand weakness, which, by the way, was a much bigger weakness than it was in the Kalinina match. Why was that? I just praised her backhand. I was just praising Pari's backhand in the Kalinina match. But in this one, uh, Pari goes to the slice a good amount early, a decent amount early. And Andreva was able to handle it a lot better I think for two reasons. One, the biggest the biggest reason is she she hits a lot of topspin on her backhand. Now she can be aggressive and you know make fat contact with the ball and and hit it straight and hard, right? So it's not she doesn't have a, a spinny backhand always, but basically she has no problem hitting heavy topspin on her backhand, and that just made her a lot more comfortable hitting from low contact point. And just kind of lifting up on the ball and just hitting a nice loopy cross court backhand with plenty of topspin, easily able to get the ball up and down, uh, not having to decelerate much, just because she had to hit from a low contact point. Plain and simple, active left wrist on the backhand, pretty good from a low contact point. That was the biggest thing. Did she uh, did she hit a couple of slices? Yes, one of them looked ugly, a few of them looked good, but in general. What what ultimately happened was Pari just got away from slicing her backhand, and when she and I'm I'm not talking about defensive slices because that doesn't count. I mean like neutral neutral balls, uh, slice backhands. She stopped doing that pretty early in the match. I don't agree with that uh, because I think it's her more consistent backhand. She ended up going to the drive backhand, giving Andreva all this rhythm, and missing it way more than she'd miss her slice. And I don't see the benefit. Like, Pari's not hitting topspin backhands and really breaking Andreva's contact point or forcing errors or drawing short balls. She's just not. It's not big enough. So I thought that was a tactical error by Pari, but also I think you have to credit Andreva for clearly being more comfortable with the slice than Kalinina, who just hits a flatter backhand and has no backhand slice whatsoever.
So, all right, a couple more notes. Uh, I loved Andreva's depth. Awesome depth. She's super even from both wings, but I actually prefer her two-handed backhand over her forehand. But I, I really like both of her ground strokes. I would like to see her play a match where, and, and by the way, I'm sure like Risk and Osorio were more like this. I'd like to see her kind of play a match where she has to be more offensive. In this match, she just didn't have to, so I didn't really get to see those skills as much. But uh, she's clearly just such a uh, polished ball striker at this point in her career, and she's got a really good serve. And uh, again, the biggest thing was her depth and her tactical focus and how few errors she was making. Just on parry, with this performance being, you know, obviously subpar as well, and that's why it was a blowout, she needs to be more willing to play long points. Her offensive toolbox is really, really vast. There's a lot of cool things she does offensively that allow her to finish points on her terms. She's an excellent volleyer. Barely got to net um, in this match. But she's a really good volleyer. She hits good drop shots. She has the slice that she can kind of pick apart opponents with, especially if they have certain weaknesses. And she has enough finishing power on her forehand. Like the meat and potatoes, just drive forehand, hit it past someone, penetrate. Yeah, she has that as well. But... She does not have A-plus power in general. Enough power. She has enough power on her forehand where I'm like, okay, that's not going to be a huge weakness for you. But is it is it even A-minus power? I don't even know if it's A-minus power. It's more like B, B-plus power. So even though you have all of these interesting tools, the only way you can get away with, oh, I'm going to play short points. Like, I'm just going to be really aggressive and finish points all the time on a slow clay court. The only way you're getting away with that is if you have Ostapenko, Sabalenka, Rybakina power. That's the only way you're going to... If you don't have that, you better be willing to play long rallies. And I just didn't think Pari was. And her backhand, her topspin backhand in particular, was getting exposed in this match. She wasn't able to protect it against Andreva's... Uh, intensity. Again, it, it, it's not... It's a... It's a good ball that Andreva hits. It's heavy. The forehand has a lot of topspin. The backhand sometimes uh, can be pretty heavy with the topspin, but more than anything, a lot of depth. Uh, good average speed. She wasn't missing. Uh, she was very precise on her forehand, especially when she had opportunities to, to attack. So there was a lot of intensity coming... Pari's way to her backhand, and she was not able to handle it. But uh, she also, I think, needs to work on her fitness, and she needs to get more patient. Uh, she needs to understand that she doesn't have the power to be able to play quick points all the time. So that's all. Um, really looking forward to continuing to watch uh, Mira Andreva. What a what a phenomenon! I mean, this this story could get big if she keeps going. Let's go to Altmaier Sinner. I'm pretty bummed out about one thing here, which is that while I was watching, I was not taking notes because I'm always able to watch the replay of these matches, 
for some reason, the replay of this one didn't go up. Some kind of technical glitch. So I wasn't able to rewatch. I really wanted to rewatch the end of the fourth set and the end of the fifth set and kind of do a deep dive on a lot of the big points in this match because it was so close. Like, and there were so many insane twists and turns. But uh, this was as dramatic as it gets. I say straight, of a, straight out of a movie because the ebbs and flows of it just, it reminded me of the corny underdog protagonist sports movie where obviously Altmaier is the underdog protagonist where the, the first part of the movie, the first four sets, right, is like, this guy's too good. I can't win, right? Like, it's not going to happen for me. And then it's suddenly like, wow, I almost lost in a straightforward way. Like, Sinner almost won in four. Uh, he had a match. He served for the match at 5-4 in the fourth. He had a match point. He had two match points. He had an overhead on the second match point. He lets it bounce. And he hits it right, right down the middle. Like, just right through the middle of the court. For really no reason. Shouldn't have gone down the middle. And Altmaier hits this forehand pass. And this is where the movie gets like super slow motion and maybe they shoot it in a way when when it hits the net tape, it looks like Altmaier just lost the match. But no, it, it clips the tape and goes over Sinner's racket. I'm super hesitant to say that Sinner got unlucky and that Altmaier got lucky. At the end of the day, if it went... Uh, a couple millimeters higher, it would have been a really super tough volley for Sinner because the ball was dipping at his feet. Obviously, if it went a millimeter lower, things might have been different and it might have not gone over. Sure, but at the end of the day, Sinner had the finish and he should have finished and he didn't finish. And that's what kind of... That's what extended the match. Altmaier takes the, the fourth set to a tiebreak, wins the tiebreak, and then gets a lead in the fifth set and finds himself in the same situation. He goes up 40 love. He loses um, all three. Oh, actually, that's not how it went. He serves out the match. He's trying to serve out the match. Uh, and he has a match point at 5-4. Has an overhead of his own. Or is that 6-5? All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Serves for it at 5-4. Sinner gets, uh, Sinner breaks him. And then at 5-all, Altmaier breaks back. So now he serves for the match for a second time. And he goes up 40-love. And he blows all three match points. And at this point, if you're watching this movie, you're thinking like, oh, what a, what a classic, like, predictable movie here. Like... I get it, like the underdog almost lost, and then he comes storming back to win. I've seen this a million times. I'm yawning here. But wait, Altmaier blows the 40 love. Add in another match point for Daniel. His fourth. He gets an overhead. What beautiful poetry that he is going to hit the, the overhead winner. This very same shot that Sinner was not able to manage. And 
Altmaier hits this overhead out of the air, cross court. It's not straight through the middle, but it also wasn't, didn't have a lot of width on it. Right to Sinner's forehand. And Sinner cranks a clean passing shot winner. Boom. And this is where I was thinking, oh, I see how this is going to go. This is going to be a heart-wrenching defeat for Daniel Altmaier, isn't it? This is going to be, he came all the way back. He saved match points. He came from the brink. He pulled an absolute Houdini act. And then he blew his own chances and ended up losing anyway. And it is going to be the most crushing loss ever. Well, then it got me again. Because Altmaier would actually end up holding at 6-5. Saving some break points and holding at 6-5 uh, to win the match. To win the fifth set 7-5. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the movie, it got me because it got me to think at the very end, it got me to think that center was going to win once again. And then the twist, the final twist, uh, it was incredible. It was unbelievable. I guess now we'll just get into the tactics of it. What I was seeing for center was not playing the forehand nearly enough. All right. First of all, Altmaier is a guy who I've liked for a long time on slow surfaces. Uh, you've seen him, you know, he was a dark horse uh, either for Madrid or for Rome. I've, I always think he's dangerous. He has a uh, really great weight of shot, super heavy topsman, incredibly fit, very, very good defender. Uh, he's a gritty defender. I think with Altmaier, a lot of it is just he he kind of he's someone who reminds you that so much of defense is about attitude. So much is how much am I willing to commit to doing all of this running and digging out every single ball and just hustling and never trying to kind of get over ambitious, trying to reset the point fully. Just be willing to make those extra balls and commit to, to, to running a ton. Uh, just gritty, hard, tough defense. Willingness to suffer uh, in this case. Altmaier has all that, and then he has this just uh, beautiful one-handed backhand. And when I talk about his one-handed backhand on clay, I, I think it's one of the best in the world. Gil, how can you say that? He's not even top 50. That's because of his forehand. That's not because of his backhand. His backhand is purely and easily, to me, one of the very best in the world on clay. Now, as soon as he gets to the quicker surfaces, a lot of issues on that side. Gets rushed. Return to serve really bad. Yeah not effective unless he has tons of time. He needs the time. And he also can't hold his court position at all because he needs to be like eight feet back to give himself time for the one-handed kind of take back. And on quick courts, he gets hurt for his court position. I digress. None of this actually is relevant to right now. Point is, that backhand is a gem on the clay. The forehand is has a lot of issues. 
like he can't really hit cross court forehands without dropping the ball short. His cross court forehand is usually very unthreatening. Uh, there are inconsistency issues on his forehand when he tries to step in, uh, but mainly, you know, he's just trying to hit these, you know, heavy topspin, super high RPM forehands. And he gets himself into trouble because he drops the ball short. Yannick just play into his backhand way too much. Really frustrating to watch. Not the first time I've seen it from Sinner. That hurt him a lot. And then the second thing was, with Altmaier being such a willing and competent defender and playing from a really deep court position, Yannick needed to find ways to finish other than his power. These are slow conditions. Altmaier's 15 feet back. Sorry, but like you're going to have to figure out other ways. Obviously, Sinner is most comfortable just blasting through guys, but that wasn't really going to be an option here. So you got to come to net, and you got to make some volleys. You have to finish overheads. You have to hit some drop shots, maybe. And in all of those areas, he vastly, vastly underperformed. His forehand drop shot, he hit one good one. Other than that, it was a total mess. The volleys were were really bad in this match. And obviously the overhead cost him the match. So he's been working really hard on these areas. He's committed to making these things better. He is actually doing them more and more. There was a point in time where Sinner wasn't coming to net. He wasn't hitting drop shots. That's no longer the case. I made this argument recently. I made it on a mailbag. I'll make it again. The fact that he is doing it in matches is a necessity. He'll never get better in the future if he doesn't do it. But boy, is it a work in progress. He is not a good four-court finisher right now. Uh, unless he can, again... Unless the conditions, both opponent, surface, all of these things, put him in a place where his power is actually doing the job. And when I say doing the job, I mean getting the job done. Winning points for him. And Altmaier just wasn't going to let that happen with his defense. Center big picture here. Uh, fourth five-set loss in a row. At a slam, but the last three were a lot better than this. They were to either eventual champions or eventual runner ups. It's a bad loss for Sinner. There's no doubt about that. This has not been a frequent occurrence for, for Yannick. Uh, he's actually been very upset averse recently. I know. Whenever a player takes a bad loss, sometimes it's it's difficult to keep that perspective, especially when he hasn't won a big title. So I'm sure there's kind of maybe the, the narrative or the feeling right now is classic Yannick flopping in a major. That's not fair because it's not classic Yannick because this doesn't and hasn't happened very often. Because... He hasn't taken a bad loss in a major since Wimbledon 2021 when he lost to Martin Fucevic, who's similar to Daniel Altmaier, 
is, again, not somebody who he should lose to, no doubt about that. Although at this point, he was still outside the top 20 when he lost to Fucevic, but also a dangerous unseated player. Uh, last year, we talked about it all year. He was super upset averse. This year, he's been very upset averse. His worst loss of the season was probably, given how well Corda was playing in January, Sarundolo in Rome. Again, if that's your bad loss, that's a pretty excellent bad loss halfway through the season. Now, of course, this is the worst loss he's taken. So the one the one area where I'll defend Sinner is don't say, oh, this is classic Yannick. It's not. Classic Yannick would have been if he made the quarterfinal. And sorry, I can't use a relevant example in his draw anymore. But what I would have said is classic Sinner would be if he would make the quarterfinal and lose to Daniil Medvedev. That would have been classic Sinner. That would have been more fair than saying this is typical Yannick because it's not. That being said, while this match showcased some technical issues for Sinner, which I've outlined, he needs to get better uh, on the volleys. He needs to get better on the drop shot. Uh, I've never noticed that he has an overhead problem, but he certainly had one in this match. While those things are are certainly true, and especially in slow conditions against someone who, who defends really well, he's going to need to have those things. I'd be remiss if I if I didn't acknowledge that ultimately Yannick is getting nervous here. Yannick got nervous here. And while he has what while I, I do trust him to come through the first week of majors at this point. He's made the quarters at all four. While I do trust him. Uh, the reason why I thought I can't really see him winning the title, even though a lot of things were actually playing in his direction uh, for, for a little while, it looked like there was going to be some opportunity for him, uh, especially, I mean, look, I, I don't want to get into kind of the outlook on center before the tournament, other than my big question for him is, the fact that he's never won a big title, the fact that he's had scar tissue losses in big finals and big quarterfinals and five-set losses, I don't trust his nerve management. And watching this match, watching how he played from ahead, watching him try to close, watching him play with leads, it's hard not to look at this as another loss where his nerve management was a problem. And I do think it is an obstacle for him right now. You get over that obstacle by um, making technical improvements and winning big tournaments so that you're more confident in your your abilities and you're less uh, you're you're putting less pressure on yourself. Uh, that's what Center said after the match that I, he put too much pressure on himself. Of course he did, uh, because he's probably feeling like it's time for him to do something big here and frustrated that he hasn't yet. But that can be, as I've talked about, and as like a Felix Ojeda-Alessim knows very well, that can be a vicious cycle. I have two more matches I want to talk about, but I'm going to go uh, quicker and less in-depth on both of them. Uh, the tremendous story of Kayla Day continues. Um, she gets through Madison Keys, the number 20 seed. Uh a step up from beating Kiki Moldenovich, that's for sure. Kayla Day beats Moldenovich, and it's okay. Well, you beat someone on, what, an eight-match losing streak? This is a different story. Madison Keys, who 
has actually been pretty good at Roland Garros in her career. Made the semifinal in 2018, made the quarters in 2019, played really well in Rome, made the fourth round there. So now Day goes from, oh, wow, nice story. Like she wins her first match at a major completed ever. And she's playing her first major since since U.S. Open. Uh, what was it? I have it written down here somewhere. Uh, 2017. Like, well, that's a nice story. Now it's gone from nice story to, oh, that's a big win. You actually just really affected this tournament in in a massive way. Uh, so huge win against Madison Keys in three sets. Where do I want to begin here? Look, Keys made like seventy unforced errors or something wild like that. I'll, I'll pull up the actual number here because I'll be able to get that. This was another defense beats offense match. It was very clear which role each player was going to occupy here. And I thought Kayla Day did a, a good job of using her leftiness to hit heavy topspin to Key's backhand. Madison was just unable to figure out that maybe she should move back on that high, heavy topspin ball. Like, let it drop. Buy yourself some time, and you can hit big, but you're actually probably going to make the ball if you just move back and hit the ball on the fall instead of hugging the baseline and trying to hit this ball on the rise on clay and hit really big at the same time. I've never been a, a fan of that. I mean, some players can make it work on some occasion, but you should not be trying to crush balls on the rise on clay it's going to be hard to be consistent. And obviously Madison Keys was not here. Let's see. Uh, unforced errors. Yeah, I didn't actually exaggerate. She made 74 unforced errors in a three-set match. So 40 winners to 70 unforced. Uh, Kayla Day was at 10 winners to 23 unforced. If you make Keys hit extra shots, you get rewarded. Day was very committed to running and making as many balls as she could. And the unforced errors came. These conditions, these balls, I mean, it's going to be interesting to kind of follow. Because there are two ways this can go. Either you hit so big and you have so much power that you're not affected by the slow conditions because you can hit through them anyway. And that is mostly what I've focused on throughout my coverage, especially when I was like breaking down the Vilch versus Medvedev match. I was saying, okay, Medvedev doesn't have the forehand to actually get through these conditions, and Vilch does, and that's the difference. So you can look at it that way, like, let's, this is going to favor the players who, who hit big. You can also look at it as, the players who are going to be willing to defend really well make it super hard to to finish points against them and be really comfortable from neutral and have good consistency and great shot tolerance. What about those players? They can benefit from this also. So you don't need to be a power player to reap the benefits of this at all. In fact, 
that's been that was kind of a common theme of the day. Andreva Garcia, I don't think Andreva was playing defensively, but she was certainly the more solid player that won her the match. Just limiting mistakes much much better. Altmaier was the more solid player that won him the match. Kayla Day was the more solid player. Altmaier, in the case of Altmaier and Day, defense was a huge part of it. Just making extra balls. Tiafo Karatsev. This is a tough one for me to talk about because I called the first set and and that was it. And Karatsev won the first set. I thought Aslan looked great. I can tell you all about why Aslan won the first set, in my opinion. That would be a waste of everybody's time because clearly something changed in the match and Tiafo won the next three. Only thing I noticed that Foe was doing in the first set, which I loved, was using the body serve. Uh, Karatsev, someone who stands in tight on the baseline and tries to be aggressive on the the uh, the return. So many players would neglect to hit the body serve. And it's such a mistake. Tiafa was on that. And I really appreciated Foe's use of the body serve against Karatsev, uh, Karatsev's uh, return position. Super important. Really, really good. Big win for Foe. Uh, didn't pick up much momentum in the clay court season, but I respect that win immensely, immensely, given uh, all the things that Karatsev has done. I think he won, uh, I think, 11 out of his 12, 11 out of his last 12 matches coming into the Tiafo match. So that's a really excellent win for Foe. I'll talk to you tomorrow, everybody. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.